Hello, 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 listeners, and welcome back to Northern Nightmares. Hello. We're happy to have you again. <laughs> it's, been, it's been a journey, hasn't it, since oh, December? My gosh, yes, it has. <laughs> <laughs> will they get it out on time? Who knows? That's why they listen to see. <laughs> right. Oh, will they record on time? Who Absolutely knows? not. <laughs> Definitely not. Don't bet on us this week. <laughs> Tell me about your week, Mom. Well... I have spring fever, and I'm not going to deny it. <sighs> I've planted so nice. like 500 seeds of flower seeds, mm. petunias and pansies and snapdragons and labelia and marigolds and poppies, and I don't even know what else. <laughs> all of the things. All of the things, and they all sprouted within like three days of planting. It was very <sighs> cool. A lot of them have like four leaves now, my little seedlings. So happy. So, so happy. happy. Yes. <clears throat> They're on heat mats. With lights, they're on a shelf, and I have a heat mat underneath them and a light above them, each shelf. Mm-hmm. So it's a lot of light and a lot of heat, and it's a very humid, hot little spare bedroom right now. <laughs> <laughs> and the plants are loving it. <laughs> they are loving it. Dad, not so much. <laughs> oh, it's when does fine. Dad love anything? It's fine. <laughs> and then uh, we had a huge snow pile in the backyard. It was up to the top rail of the deck the deck's not very high off the ground it's like a foot off the ground Mm -hmm. but the um, rail is a couple feet above that and that snow pile berm was up to the top of it and it was packed down ice snow from the dogs from everything else Mm -hmm. so we borrowed a tractor yesterday and dad is we've been out moving snow out of the backyard (laughs) and last night I thought he was about done and I said so are you just going to scrape the big snow chunks that you've pushed up on the top, pull those down, and then just get rid of those. He's like, oh, no, I'm going to go all the way around the side, down the hot tub, get all those piles out. Like, you can't just get rid of all the snow. I mean, (laughs) there's a lot of snow. And he's piling it up in the front of the house. don't tell me what I can't do. I'm going to try. It's like a snow fortress in the front of the house now (laughs) because that melts and it'll go downhill in front of the house, like away from the house. Our house is kind of up on the hill. So the snow will melt and go down away from the house. We're hoping. Mm -hmm. We're just trying to keep the snow away from the foundation. We're trying to get the, oh my gosh, we have a low spot in the backyard and it always makes this huge, nasty, nasty lake. It's going to be so gross. And with three dogs and all the, it's going to be bad enough as it is. I could imagine with four feet of snow melting into that yard oh my god so <laughs> it would be a lake you would have a lake you would not have a yard you would have a lake with three dogs much like i imagine it. my front yard is gonna look like yeah the dogs might go in the back <laughs> honestly <laughs> right on a lead <laughs> oh anyway that's been our troubles this week just trying to move snow and i know that the rest of the country is dealing with snow but ours is the same snow that's been here since December, and it is just hard packed. It's not light yeah, and fluffy, no. <laughs> wet even. It is just hard cement. cement. And it comes up in these huge ice chunks, and mm-hmm. it's just, it's that's heavy, and it's, I'm so sore. Because oh. Dad got to run the tractor. I don't know how to run the tractor. So guess what I got to do? I got run to run the, the damn shovel. And I had to dig out around... From in front of the deck, in front of the hot tub, I've got flower beds and I've got flower pots. So I had to dig all those out so we didn't hit them with the tractor. Mm -hmm. So that's three feet away from the deck. I had to dig through by hand with that hard, heavy, damn snow. So 
<laughs> and then I made a trail to my greenhouse and yeah. Wow. I'm sore. Yeah. Anyway. I can imagine. How, I know how your week's been, but why don't you tell them how fun it's been? Oh my God. Um, we had a contagion, an outbreak. All of us. Uh, for the dogs, not for the people. All five of them. All of them got something. Um, and they kind of spread out like five or three days apart. One yeah. had come down with it, and then another one had cut like three days later. The other one, and then three days later, another one. And Radar was staying here because we had... Cash got neutered. Yeah. So that's kind of where it began. And then Radar brought it home. And then those two got it. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Intestinal challenges. Yeah. That's the the PG version. Um, I was going to say tummy troubles. (laughs) (laughs) The G version. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah. But I think Duke was probably the first to come down with it. He bounced back okay. um, Which we're really, really happy about because of his past medical history. And revolving then, around intestinal challenges. Right. And then uh, I think Radar and Daisy got it at about the same time. But Radar went home. Yeah. And Daisy ended up having to be hospitalized for it. Um, she had to be hospitalized overnight. It was very scary. But she pulled through. She's back to her same old self. Um, to put it lightly, she is a, she's a monster. Piranha. A piranha. <laughs> From the Amazon. Yeah, so it's been been dealing with that, and that's... And again, we can plug pet insurance for (laughs) all of that. Oh, my God. You have it on your two dogs. I have it on mine. They don't have it on Trevor's dogs. Yeah. All of them have been to the vet this week. Yeah. Daisy's vet visit was over $2,000. So, um... God, I'm so grateful for pet insurance. I paid for the next, like, what... Fuck, the next, like, ten years. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Just in in Uh, itself right now. Yep. Can't say it enough. Pet insurance, pet insurance, pet insurance. Yeah, wow. Radar's wasn't as expensive. He had had a weird eye infection, too, on top of it. Yeah. And he still has a weird spot on his eye. It's on his cornea. It's a blood, it looks like a blood blister, but there's no vascularization in that part of the eye. So he's got him perplexed. Mm-hmm. So, so he's going to have to go to a specialist probably. Maybe. <laughs> At the vet, the, the emergency for pet, pet hospital. So thank God for pet insurance. Because <laughs> these, yeah, these two visits covered the deductible, which is only like 250 bucks. But it's paid now. So if he has to go to the specialist, we're covered. But we're just yeah. trying to, we have to take pictures of this spot on his eye. To try to see if it's getting worse or better. We're trying to do it in the same lighting so that um, his pupil's the same size. So that we have a comparison. We can see if the spot is getting bigger or smaller. And it's kind of like right along his pupil in the colored part of his eye. It's Mm. just weird. It just looks like a little blood spot. Mm. It's not worse, but it's not any better in a week. So trying to figure that one out. Interesting. Dogs. Dogs. (laughs) Yeah, I was just doing some mental math, and Daisy's one vet visit has paid for both of the dog's pet insurance for this entire year. Right. The entire year. Um, Which is good. And you know Duke's paid for his last year. Yeah, so it's quite literally paying for itself mm-hmm. for our family. <laughs> now, Radar, we've had it for a year now, over a year. And last year, I think I got... back from different visits. Mm -hmm. 
and I pay $80 a month. Mm. <laughs> so it did not yeah. pay for itself. <laughs> and then this year we're paying again. We've got the deductible paid, but if he has to be seen for his eye, then it'll be worth it. And it's yeah. just, and I don't have any, um, preventative or anything like that on it. Mm-hmm. So his vaccines aren't covered and his neuters not covered and, and those sorts of things. So, yeah. uh, just illness and, and emergency injury, that sort of thing. Yeah. Are the only things I have on radar. So my dogs have the, the wellness coverage and I love it. They've got the Cadillac <laughs> of insurances and, um, I, it, I love the peace of mind, honestly. Embrace, Speaking of which, embrace yourself. Pet insurance, please sponsor us. <laughs> I have Figo. <laughs> Perfect. So it's been quite a week. Quite Thank a week. <laughs> and late recordings and... Yeah. And, and. Yeah. Yeah. So And it's a beast of a case. Two-parter this week. It is. Well, this week and next... At a minimum. At a minimum. <laughs> Could be longer. Could be. Who knows? Not me. As we're getting ready to go on a hiatus again. Yeah. Indefinite hiatus this time. Yes. So there's this episode, which is the monster you've all been waiting for. <laughs> <laughs> and then we're going to do the, the case that started it all yeah, for us. We, we were like, why haven't we heard this case on any other podcast? We need to cover we it. We need to cover it. And then it's like, well, we what would start it take to podcast. do a podcast? So we did. We'll do that case. What a journey this has taken us, huh? I know. <laughs> after that, after uh, Robert Hansen, and then and then we'll be done for a little while. Yes. Bittersweet. Bittersweet. We can always come back. Yeah. We're just not sure when or if or... Right. Might be a little inconsistent. Like, oh my God, this is happening. We have to cover this. Or we have to give a follow-up on this. Okay, guys, as many of you know, today we are covering the big bed, Robert Hansen. Too bad it wasn't a more ominous sound. That was pretty cheery. You know what it reminded me of? It reminded me of when um, I was a kid. We had golden book things, and it would you had a tape, and you put it in, and it would do the chime to turn the page. Yeah, that was the chime. We had the button books when I was growing up, where you press a button and it makes a sound. And sometimes they were like really happy sounds, and yeah, and it would show like it would show in parentheses the which button to push. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Those at the right time. Right. Mm-hmm. Damn. <laughs> and I had to be my husband. <laughs> Cute. Okay. Couldn't be the mom, so I'm like, don't, don't, don't. Right. <laughs> I don't know what your sound is for me, but that's, that's not inappropriate. Not that. Maybe my, uh, maybe my bosses uh. <laughs> or something. <laughs> As I was saying, we're covering Robert Hansen, the butcher baker of Alaska. And... I will take any levity that we can have in this case, because um, there's not going to be a lot of there's not going to be a lot of laughter. Um, probably some anger, but mm. mom's gonna be mad. Mom's gonna I be pretty mad. I think. Yeah. 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 Mom. Jeez. So, in case you haven't heard of this guy, which I would still say that a lot of people haven't. Yes, he has. Like, one show on Investigation Discovery. There have been a couple of 
movies about him. Nicolas um, Cage movie about yeah, him. Yeah, On Frozen Ground is that mm-hmm. movie if you want to check it out. There have been several books about him, but still there are just a lot of people who haven't heard of him. Or they have heard about him, but they don't know no, much story. about the story. Uh-huh. Yeah. I know that Morbid has covered this case. Crime Junkie has covered this case. Uh, the last podcast on the left has covered this case. And they all do a pretty good job. But we can't have an Alaska co- Alaska podcast and not, not Robert, cover this. Robert Hansen, right? Yeah. Um, he killed, we think he killed up to 18 people. Um, he was convicted of killing four. So we're going to so kind that's of 400 years. walk you through. <laughs> right. Well, not even that. It'd be 396. 96, yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. it's 99 years. Right. Yeah. We'll get into that. But yeah, we think he murdered about 18 people, so we have a lot to kind of cover today. Because of the number of people that this guy murdered, our typical structure of storytelling just doesn't work quite the same way. Usually I start with the victims and I tell you all about their lives and what happened leading up to their death. But with 18 victims, that structure sort of starts to fall apart. So we got to kind of follow Robert's life instead. Unfortunately, I don't like to give him a lot of, I don't know, attention, notoriety, whatever you want to call it. It's just kind of how we have to tell the story for things to make sense. Makes sense. All right. So let's just jump right in. Robert Christian Hansen was born to Christian and Edna Hansen way back in 1939. Christian Hansen, who was Robert's dad, was a Swedish immigrant who was fairly new to the U.S. and was making a name for himself with the family-owned bakery that the Hansens were running in the small town of Esterville, Ohio. Creatively, it was called Hansen's Bakery. (laughs) Christian was described as a pretty strict disciplinarian when it came to Robert's upbringing, and it's said that Robert was forced to work long hours at the bakery throughout his childhood. Was he the only child? He was not an only child. He did have a sibling, but I'm not sure if it was a brother or sister. They've and kind of stayed out of the older younger. He was the older. Okay. Older sibling. Gotcha. Yep. I'm just curious. Yeah, of course. Robert was teased relentlessly in school because of his intense acne, stutter, and his skinny frame. Throughout his adolescence, he was kind of a loner and never had a girlfriend. In later years, when he was interviewed by police about his crimes, he would look back on these years in his life and say, quote, Going back in my life, I was, I guess, what you would call very frustrated. I would see my friends and so forth going out on dates and so forth and had a tremendous desire to do the same. From the scars and so forth on my face, you can probably see why girls wouldn't want to get close to me, end quote. Also, fun fact, Robert was naturally left-handed, but at the time, that was seen as something shameful that was discriminated against. So he was forced to be right-handed? Yeah, his teachers at school forced him to do everything with his right hand. Safe to say, Robert was not a fan of school. Not a happy childhood. No. But there were also no signs of abuse or mm-hmm. neglect, just kind of strict parenting, but that's bullying and law. Yeah. As soon as Robert turned 18, he enlisted in the Army Reserves and served for a year before being discharged. His job while he was in the military, while he was, 
His job while he was in was as a military police officer. Imagine that. (laughs) But he was only in for a year. Yeah, he was only in for a year. Um, I know he was discharged. I'm not sure if it was honorable, dishonorable, or the circumstances surrounding that. It's been kind of sealed over time. Mm. Probably, I would guess, a sexual assault. I would guess. (laughs) Especially considering his time that he spent in the military. He was hanging out with a lot of... Um, a lot of sex workers, which there's nothing wrong with that, but he did not like sex workers. So I could imagine, given what happened later, mm-hmm. that there was some violence that happened there that led to a dishonorable discharge. Speculation. Speculation. Allegedly. Allegedly. Tiam, tiam, tiam. Okay. No tiam. We're not trademarking that. <laughs> no, I guess not. <laughs> Robert got married to his first wife right after his little stint in the reserves. But unfortunately, not a whole lot is known about how their, about their relationship or how they came to know each other. The one thing that I do know is that apparently her parents were not happy that she was marrying Robert. I don't know the reasoning behind that. I'm not sure if something him. happened. But I know that they did not care for him. Gotcha. In 1960, when Robert was 21, sorry, when he was 20 years old, he started to make a plan with one of his 16-year-old co-workers at the bakery. The plan was for the two of them to burn down the school bus barn. Robert's line of thinking behind all of this was to retaliate at the school for his own shitty educational experience. He's been out of school for like two and a half years at this point. Yeah, but he he holds holds a a grudge. (laughs) He holds a grudge. He doesn't let it go. No. The two of them actually went through with it, and they did burn down the bus barn. Um, One firefighter was severely injured while tending to the blaze, but he recovered and nobody was killed. And the the cohort with him was 16? Yeah. So that person was a juvenile. Yeah. Okay. The 16-year-old had a guilty conscience, and he confessed to the crime not long after it happened. Robert was sentenced to three years in jail for the arson, but he was paroled after just 20 months for his good behavior. Hmm. While he was in jail, he saw a psychiatrist who diagnosed him with infantile immature personality disorder, which is, by the way, no longer a valid and recognized diagnosis in the DSM-5. <laughs> Apparently, so he was just immature. Yeah, so the hallmarks of this disorder in Robert were, quote, childlike hysteria, volatile emotions, and a clingy fixation on others, end quote. So he would throw temper tantrums, basically, yes. like fits. Yeah, Robert Hansen was the original incel. <laughs> he was very much so like, oh my gosh, why doesn't why don't women want me? I'm so desirable. And any time they re- rejected him... He's the typical um, nice guy, and anytime they rejected him, he was like, "Well, you don't deserve to live anymore." So, wow, yeah, he is not so great, um, obviously, or he wouldn't be on this podcast, probably. Yeah, Robert's wife was not happy about his arrest, and their divorce was finalized six months into his sentence. Good, yeah. And her parents were like, I told you so. Right. But and then listen. things happened years later and they were like, fucking oh, bullet dodged. Right? <laughs> bullet right. dodged. They didn't have kids together. No, not with the first wife. 
Pretty much as soon as Robert was paroled, he started courting a woman named Darla, who would become his second wife in 1963. Darla was a teacher, and over the next several years, she would become known for being one of the best teachers in the state of Alaska at teaching children with dyslexia to read. Everyone loved Darla, and she was a really amazing woman in their community. For a few years, things are... They were still in Iowa, though, right? Yes, yes, yes. So they haven't, they haven't moved to Alaska yet, but over time, mm-hmm. that was her reputation. So while they, they were kind of in Iowa for a time, and then they... Um, or sorry, he was born and raised in Ohio. After the reserves, he went to Iowa for a little bit with Darla. And then in 1967, they decided that they wanted to move to Alaska for, quote, a fresh start. Okay. That's because Robert had a little bit of a kleptomania issue, and he kept getting in trouble for stealing usually pretty small things, but it was just constant. He kept losing jobs because he was constantly stealing from his employers and his coworkers. So he wasn't still working for the dad's bakery. No, but he worked in other bakeries in the area. So he worked at like a Safeway bakery. He worked a couple of other grocery store bakeries and he was constantly stealing from them. So they would fire him. So they wanted to move to Alaska for a fresh start. Gotcha. Because he'll stop stealing in Alaska. Right. I don't think it was much of the fresh start that they were hoping for because soon after the couple settled in Anchorage, Robert again started getting into regular trouble with the law for petty theft. And this would continue for multiple, multiple, multiple times over the next couple of years. He would be arrested and then released and then arrested and then released. He had to pay a bunch of fines and court costs, but there was never really any lasting consequences for these thefts. Robert and his wife were paying for all of these court costs with with the profits from the Hanson's Bakery location that he had opened up in Anchorage. So kind of making his dad's bakery sort of a franchise, Mm -hmm. opening up their own little corner of the business in Anchorage. The branch down in Iowa, as far as I know, was still open and serving customers there too. And that was being run still by his, his parents. I'm sure his dad was proud when he opened up the bakery up here with the same name. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, as much as he would show it. Right. Right. That's the that's Probably the kicker. didn't tell him that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, Robert had been a pretty avid hunter in Iowa. That's kind of where he developed a love for the sport. Because after his wife had their first child, she became so attentive on motherhood that he needed a hobby to keep himself So he was hunting again. Yeah, so he started hunting. And when they moved to Alaska, his love for the sport really flourished. Well, this is a hunter's paradise up here. It is. For big game and small game. Yeah. Robert said that he really loved hunting along the Knick River, which is kind of in between Anchorage and the Palmer-Wasilla area. Yeah. You go over the Knick River Bridge and... Yeah, I go over it like four or five times a week. (laughs) Right. Yeah, um, which it's it's beautiful. Oh, it's, it's so beautiful. It is it stunning is, country out there. Yeah, you have Pioneer Peak, that huge mountain right behind it. The railroad bridge is a little bit off in the distance. Mm-hmm. And every day it just, with lighting the sun, the fog, 
the oh snow God, every day it's different it's beautiful and on the time of day it just it's the postcard right there every <laughs> it time is. <laughs> every time you drive to anchor it's like i live in a postcard and that's the area that he's describing right and there's moose and there's bear and there's rabbit rabbit <laughs> and stuff down in that area yeah Robert hunted all sorts of different types of game, and he was pretty—he was a pretty good shot. Um, during hunting season, he would take his private little float plane up to more remote areas so he could get a better shot at getting some big game. Mm-hmm. Well, the caribou is further north than we are, so you have to go up there to get caribou, and right, you fly in to get the big moose. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's not all that weird that Robert owned his own plane and was able to pilot it. It's a skill that a lot of wealthy people pick up when they move to the state, and the bakery was doing fairly well, and he had gotten a large settlement from... And it's not even just the wealthy people. There's a huge percentage of people up here who have their pilot's license and own small planes. Well, Robert couldn't get his pilot's license officially because he was on lithium at the time to manage bipolar disorder. And because of that, they wouldn't let him get his pilot license legally, but he had a lot of rich friends who knew how to fly and had their pilot's license who kind of showed him the ropes. I'm sure they regret that now. (laughs) Anyway, Robert also loved to show off his hunting skills. His house in Anchorage was filled with mounts of his taxidermized kills. One of these was a record-breaking doll sheep, which he would show to pretty much anyone who visited him. I'm going to say the little bush pilot business insider. Yeah, go for it. Six times as many pilots and 16 times as many aircraft per capita in Alaska than anywhere else in the United States. Oh, I completely agree As of January of 2022, there's (laughs) almost 8,000 active pilots, 7,933, which is about 1% of our population. Which is way more than anywhere else per capita. Between 1969 and 1971, Robert had four animal kills that were entered into the Pope and Young record book, which is basically the Guinness World Record book for hunting. Mm -hmm. At some point during these first several years in Alaska, the couple also had two children. Their first one was born down in Ohio, like I said, and then their second one was born up here. By all accounts, Robert was a caring and doting father to his children. Robert developed several friendships as he settled in. Um, Like I said, a lot of these hunting buddies, um, wealthy, powerful friends. Mm -hmm. One of these friends was a guy named Marshall Ellison, who was kind of a hunting buddy, like I said. Marshall had this other friend who was new to the area and wanted to go out hunting, and Marshall was busy and couldn't go. So he said, hey, why don't you go with my friend Robert? He'll make a great sort of guide for your first hunt up here. So Robert and this friend go out hunting in the Alaska wilderness, and the friend gets pretty bad feeling from Robert. Bad vibes. After the two get back from the trip, the friend told Marshall, quote, Marshall, you and I like to hunt because we like to be outdoors in the wilderness. We enjoy the stock. We enjoy the animals, whether we're shooting at them or not. I don't think Bob is like that. I think he enjoys the kill, Mm. end quote. Pretty, pretty good intuition there, (laughs) honestly. So there were some red flags, but everyone was sort of quick to overwrite them. Who, Bob? No, he's a great guy. He owns the local bakery. He's a solid Alaskan, not Bob. Bob's fine. Pillar of the the community. community. (laughs) 
Yeah. All right, so we talked a lot in previous episodes about the pipeline and the impact of the oil boom on Anchorage. And this was right in that hiatus in the early 70s. Exactly. The population boom, the sex worker boom, the trafficking, sad to say, boom. The rough and tumble men coming up here to hide and earn a lot of money fast. Mm -hmm. Right. So as mom is saying, the gist of the situation is that in the 70s, a giant oil pipeline was being built across the state of Alaska. The project brought in a huge swell of workmen into the area who now had wallets full of cash and nothing to spend it on. And not a lot of women at right. that time. I think at that time they'd say there's one one woman for every 10 men. Yeah. I mean, that's not a solid But that was the same because the men were coming up here to work and there wasn't any women. Right. So businesses started opening up left and right for strip clubs and bars and things like that. We'll we'll call it adult entertainment. Mm -hmm. At the same time, this one crime family moved in and started trafficking women into the state to work at the strip clubs and on the streets. And this crime family also started funneling drugs into the area as well. The hub for all of this criminal activity was 4th Avenue, which is right in downtown Anchorage and where a lot of those businesses still exist today. Mm-hmm. It was kind of interesting going back to the movie, the On yeah. Frozen Ground. One comment that I heard, I hadn't seen the movie yet, but one uh-huh. comment I heard about it was, oh, that that's nothing like Anchorage. Downtown does not look like that. There's like this <laughs> chase scene through downtown. There's a yeah. lot of people out on the street and yeah. traffic and cars. And it's like... But in the 70s, it mm-hmm. was like that. There was right. sex workers standing on the corners downtown. There yep. was drug deals happening right in the open. There, there was, was yes this huge influx of the population. And yes, they were outside yes. <laughs> doing so business. I, yeah. I believe that that was an accurate depiction it, of the time. It might not look like that now in the yeah. middle of the night, but then I bet it did. Yeah. I mean, if you ask anybody who was there at the time, there are a lot of police officers who have spoken about the Wild West nature and Mm -hmm. the craziness of things that were happening just in the street right out in the open. Along that sort of line of thought, I want to be clear that this was not on the up and up. And this was an incredibly dangerous and seedy area that you were not caught dead in for legitimate business purposes. Mm -hmm. I heard one story about magazine stands in the street that sold child pornography. Oh my gosh. Shootings, muggings, rapes were all happening on pretty much a nightly basis. Like this was, this was bad. Mm -hmm. Good old pillar of the community can do no wrong. Friendly bake shop owner, Robert became a regular in this little seedy strip. He frequented several of the strip clubs to the point where the dancers and the sex workers began to know him pretty well. And one of the weird quirks that he had at these places was that he would never make the first move because it was part of this elaborate fantasy of his that women of these clubs come after him first. Mm -hmm. Yeah. At one point in an interview, Robert said, quote, she had to come out and say we would do it, but it's going to cost you some money. Then she was no longer, I guess, what you might call a decent girl, end quote. And I hate that. I hate it so much. He wanted them to make the first move because that made them dirty or unworthy in some way, and he could justify his own shitty actions. Well, not only that, but if you know, he thought that he was so good that they weren't going to charge him. Yeah, they wanted to be with him. 
Yeah. And as soon as they gave him the dollar amount, he's like, oh, you, you don't want me for me. Right. Ugh. Yeah. He was gross. Several of the women who had interactions with Robert at these establishments said that in the beginning they found him non-threatening. One woman described him as, quote, the perfect dork, end quote. But of course, he wouldn't stay non-threatening for long. Well, we also have to take into consideration that this population, especially the adult entertainment situation, mm-hmm. was super transient. Uh-huh. They would right. ship these women up here and then they'd ship them to Hawaii or they'd ship yes. them to Vegas and they had kind of a circuit that they'd run. Mm-hmm. And so it wasn't uncommon for them to disappear or to leave or right. what have you. Without any notice. Without, without any notice. Any, yep, anything. Just walking yeah. out of their apartment and be like, then their traffickers like, well, we're going to go here now and get right. them out of the state. So it, it was a, it's a very transient, transient population even now, but then even more so because they would have their, mm-hmm. their routes that they would take and. Yeah, the the main circuit of this giant crime family that was operating in the area was they would go from Seattle to Alaska to Hawaii, back to Seattle. Mm -hmm. And so they were constantly funneling girls throughout the three cities. And the girls were promised these big, luxurious lifestyles and we'll, we'll house you, we'll take care of everything. You get to go and make some really good money. And then the girls would actually, like, they would be recruited, and Mm -hmm. then they would actually get there. And every day that they stayed in this housing, quote-unquote, they would be racking up debt to their traffickers so that they couldn't leave. Uh And the the apartments that they were promised were two dirty mattresses on a gross cement floor. So this was nothing like what they were promised, and a lot of women were trying to leave when they got into it and then they were so there was question of whether the mob was involved or this crime family was involved in some of their disappearances like mm-hmm. it was a bad situation so december of 1971 is when robert really started to devolve and began going through with all of the things that he had fantasized about for years and i want to be clear the, these fantasies were dark and i'm going to tell you about them so massive massive trigger warning here um if you're sensitive to issues of like sexual assault or graphic content you might want to skip forward probably um two minutes or so robert's mo was that he would go to these strip clubs and he would wait for a woman to approach him when she did in his own twisted effed up brain that meant that she was a whore and he had no longer had to treat her as a human. He would be very charming and would try to get the woman he was targeting to agree to meet him outside of the club for a date. He would then kidnap her, tie her up, and put her in his plane. He would fly these women to a remote place out in the wilderness and would Usually torture... Along River. Um, there was also, like, some question of if he did this in Kenai, mm-hmm. the Kenai Peninsula... Um, well, with a plane, you can go anywhere. Right. Yeah. He would fly them to a remote place out in the wilderness and would torture them and sexually assault them for varying lengths of time before he would let them go. Um, he would let them leave the cabin or leave wherever he was holding them. And, of course, these women would run for their lives, and he would give them a head start before hunting them down like literal wild animals. 
Like with a hunting rifle and a yes. scope. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And a lot of times when they were escaping, quote unquote, he wouldn't leave them their clothes. Like they right. had no clothing. Or they shoes. were often bound with wire usually mm-hmm. is what he used to bind them. So not not a good dude. At first, it started with Robert following one of his customers home after she left his bakery. Oh, my gosh. He followed her to her house. When she was already home and inside, he crept up to her door and knocked. And she had just gotten into the shower, so she came down in a towel. Mm. And he asked her to use a phone. And so and she let him, like... like Why are you... Here, I was just there. Yeah. That's weird. Yeah, so she was really creeped out, um, but she didn't feel safe telling him to leave, and so she let him use the phone book, and then he asked her out on a date. And she turned him down. It was not a successful tactic, as you could imagine. In that interaction, when she told him no, he seemed at the time to handle it kind of okay. He basically said, all right, and left But then, a week later, he showed back up at her house with a gun. And he held her at gunpoint. It was a very scary situation. Her roommates were able to call 911 and get the cops there. there. Yeah. So, Robert was arrested for that little stunt. And thankfully, the woman that he was after is okay. But, my God. Terrifying. Traumatized. Right. Not good. Did he assault her? He did not get the chance, no. Because they got there too soon? Yeah. And the roommates were there, and they were kind of like, oh, what the hell is going on? They didn't do a very good job, like, scoping out the place. No. He's pretty impulsive, Mm -hmm. and we'll kind of see that. So he was arrested, but he was let out on bail. Apparently his wife is a very forgiving woman, because she was the one to come and bail him out, and then they stayed together after this. Now, I'm just going to read you a quote from the book Alaska's Deadly Dozen, Alaska's Most Notorious Murder Cases by Tom Brennan for this part. And this is page 36. And it says, quote, Hansen's bizarre behavior with the woman won him a place in what Anchorage police called the asshole book, Mm. (laughs) a catalog of misbehaving locals that was often referred to when bad things happened in the city. The keeper of the asshole book, which is an amazing title, by the way. That's that's my input. That's not in the book. Um, anyway, that guy was a homicide investigator named Ron Rice, a seasoned officer who was then learning the act, who was then learning the art of criminal profiling, and decided that Hansen was potentially dangerous and deserved a prominent listing in the book. End quote. I just I love that the asshole book. <laughs> Just a few days later, when he was bailed out for his attempted kidnapping on Christmas Day of that year, the partially dressed body of 18-year-old Celia Van Zanten was found in McHugh Creek State Park. Now, that name might sound familiar, the the state park, McHugh Creek, (laughs) the McHugh Creek State Park, because that is where Bonnie Craig's body was found. Our second episode. Yes, we talked about her murder all the way back in episode two. So if you haven't listened already, you can go back and check that out. It's not related to this case, but it's a very powerful story nonetheless. It also is the same general area, just a couple of miles from where Shelley Connolly's body was found. We discussed her murder back on episode 27. This is like the Seward Highway going south of Anchorage, headed down mm-hmm. along Turnigan Arm. This There's mountains, road, 
railroad tracks, water, mm-hmm. very narrow area, lots of hiking, lots of mountain goats, lots of wilderness, wilderness dense forest, mm-hmm. cliffs. Yeah. That area is probably used for a lot of body dumping because of just how remote it is. I mean, it's pretty isolated out there. It's just this two-lane road. It is a highway, yes, but if you go out there at the right time of day, you're not going to see another soul. And um, if you get off of the main road and onto, like, the state park area, I mean, it's pretty easy to be pretty far away from people pretty fast. So... As mom was saying, you've got steep cliffs and dense forest on one side of this two-lane highway and then ocean on the other side. Mm -hmm. Celia's hands had been tied behind her back with wire and her chest had been slashed multiple times, but that wasn't what had actually killed her. Those were pretty deep cuts along her rib cage, but they didn't actually penetrate through through the ribs. So she would have survived if it weren't for the fact that it had been five degrees that night. Mm. Celia froze to death. She froze to death hiding from Robert, who was literally hunting her through the woods. This was the first (sighs) confirmed victim? Yes. That we have. Was she found very quickly then? Yes, she was found within like three days of going missing. Okay. So he did this like right after he got out on bail. Right. For the other one. Right, because that was... Like a week before. Okay. Yeah, so it was like... Boom, the kid, the attempted kidnapping. Well, there was first, he showed up at her house. A week goes by. He tries to kidnap her. He's arrested. A few days goes by. And he hunts down and kills Celia. And then within three days, her body is found. So very back to back. Mm -hmm. After Celia's body was found, Anchorage police started interviewing the sex workers in town to try and see if any of them had any bad experiences recently that could be possibly connected. One 18-year-old woman came forward and said that she had had a weird experience with a short guy who had acne scars on his face and spoke with a stutter. The woman said that this guy had kidnapped her at gunpoint and taken her to a local hotel where he sexually assaulted her. She said that after he put her back, after that, he put her back in the car and drove her out to the middle of nowhere in the forest and told her that he couldn't let her go. Not good. A weird detail here is that the girl had been wearing this black lace bra. And Robert, who of course is this acne scarred guy with a stutter. is in the asshole book. Why aren't they looking at him when she reports this? Well, after she reports it, they are. So we'll get there. But they are. Robert, she said, politely asked her if he could rip off her bra. And she, she asked him not to because it was expensive. He listened to her and he took it off gently. So he's got some weird psychology stuff going Mm -hmm. on there. The woman was actually able to talk herself out of the situation and talk Robert into bringing her back to safety. She said that she told him she hated cops and would never go to the cops because they would bust her for prostitution. Robert must have believed her because he then decided he was going to root around through her purse. He found her parents' address on a court document that she had in her bag and wrote the address down. And then now I've got you. Yeah. And then he told her that if she ever went to the cops, he would go to her parents' house and kill both of them and her son who was staying with them. 
The woman swore again that she wouldn't go to the cops, so Robert drove her home, and he dropped her back off in Anchorage, and he told her, quote, I wish we had met under better circumstances, end quote. Gross. Yeah, that's so gross. And guys, this woman was so, so lucky. Also in her purse that Robert had rooted around in was a business card for her father, an Alaskan state trooper. Oh, no. Thank God he didn't find that. Thank God he, he never would have believed that. that. Oh, my God. Go, I hate cops. Yeah. Wink, wink. Wow. Yeah. My dad's one. Oh, wait. I didn't say that. <sighs> wow. Hearing the description of the man, short, acne scars, stutter. The police were pretty quick to figure out that this guy could be Robert Hansen, the guy that they had just arrested like a week ago for For trying to kidnap one of his customers in the local bakery that he owned. The the police zero in on him, and they want him to provide a handwriting sample that they can use to compare to handwriting that was used to book the hotel room where the woman was raped. And so they take him into the station, and they tell him to empty out his wallet because they think there's going to be something in there with his handwriting on it. The piece of paper that he wrote the address down on? So, there was a rookie who, it was a rookie who checked Robert into the police station. And the rookie allowed Robert to rifle through the wallet before handing it over. The rookie saw Robert pocket a piece of paper. And then he was like, um, he didn't really know what to do. So he left Robert alone in the room to with the wallet and the paper to go and grab a supervisor. By the time the rookie and a more experienced cop came back into Hansen the room, had eaten the paper. Robert had eaten half oh. of the damn paper. <laughs> half of it. Half of it. When the officers asked him about it, <laughs> like, what the hell are you doing? He said it was just the name and addresses of a couple of people who could bail him out. So he was. So why it. did you eat it? So these officers decide that okay, what they do. They copy down the names and addresses from the paper that they can read, and they give Robert back the original paper. They give it back to him. By the time that they realize this is a crucial piece of evidence that backs up the victim's story and is pretty much the smoking gun, it's too late. That evidence is gone. They just have a copied piece of paper, which is useless in the court of law. You can't prove that Robert wrote it. You can't prove that it was in his wallet. You can't prove anything. So, they fucked up. <laughs> Robert... It didn't mess up a wrong. Yeah. Robert would go to court for what he did to the 18-year-old, but it was an uphill battle, especially without that, that damn paper. paper. Robert had multiple character witnesses that said he could never do something like that. And the victim didn't make a very convincing witness on the stand. Which, I mean, she would? Mm -hmm. She's traumatized. She's 18 years old. She refused to take a polygraph because she was scared. And And the attorneys used that against her. She was in the adult sex business, too. Yeah. And she was, she'd probably been in there since she was underage if she was 18 when this happened. Right. Yeah. In a tale as old as time, Robert was believed and his victim wasn't. There was a plea bargain struck that promised that Robert would be behind for five years. He was out, guess how long before he was out? Ten months. Three months. Three months? 
Why overcrowding? Um, good behavior. He knew exactly what to tell people. He knew exactly what the psychiatrist wanted to hear. He knew exactly remorse, what remorse, to do. Remorse, remorse, remorse. I'm a changed man. I admit what I did was wrong. A hundred percent. I admit he, what I did. And he would use that knowledge of how to manipulate people in the prison system to get out of these things again and again and again. Right. So that's not the first time you'll hear that or the last mm-hmm. time. That one gets me fired up. I'm so mad about that one. Heather's mad. In 1973, there was a school teacher who was living in the lower 48 and came to Alaska during the off months when school was out so that she could work as an exotic dancer. I mean, Lord knows she was not making much money as a teacher, so she had to supplement her income somewhere. And Alaska was the place to do it. Well... Nobody would recognize her. Right. Right. Oh, aren't you Billy's teacher? Right. (laughs) Exactly. Probably not. So um, on one of these trips to Alaska that she took, she ended up being sexually assaulted by Robert Robert, in much the same way as the other woman that I was telling you, just telling you about. Again, Robert was brought into the police, but this time the DA didn't want the teacher to testify through a mediator. The the teacher basically told them either I don't either you don't put me on the stand to testify in person um, because I could lose my job or I don't participate in this at all. Oh. So you have to get someone on the stand who's not me to tell my story because I can't be on, I can't be on the stand for this. But then how does he get the constitutional right to face his accuser? That's the problem. So the DA wouldn't allow this. She, he wouldn't allow somebody else to. Because it's a mistrial to. instantly. Yeah. So the victim decided that she didn't want to testify. She was like, well, I mean, you guys won't. You guys can't do this. I can't do this. So we're at a stalemate. So I'm just not going to. I'm not, gonna, charges, I'm not so I'm just going to testify. Yeah. But did he know that or was he going to. Uh, he didn't know that. Is he going to. This was luck. Plea deal? This was luck. So. Um. Yeah, she didn't want to lose her job, so she didn't testify, and so the charges against Robert were dropped, and he was a free man again. Hmm. It was this case that made Robert realize that leaving his victims alive to testify against him later was a mistake, so things started to get a lot more violent. He's not going to let anybody convince him again that they aren't going to go to the police. Right. It wasn't long before Robert was back in police custody, though. This time it was for stealing a chainsaw from a Fred Myers, which is a chain grocery store up here. Kroger. Yeah. He told the police that he had stolen the chainsaw to give to his dad for Christmas. He was sentenced for five years for this theft, which is, mind you, the same, same amount, amount of time for, for raping that 18 year old and trying to kill her. It. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, do you want to guess how much time he had? Ended up serving for this crime. Probably more than the rape. Like, I'll say five months. 16 months. Oh, well. Wow. (laughs) 16 months. During that time, he was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. And that's when he got put on the lithium and all of that stuff. Um, Before that, he got his plane, like, a little bit after this. Okay. I'm sorry. I kind of said it before to set the stage, but he acquired the plane after this little trial. It's kind of funny that the judge on this case was pissed about Hansen's repeated crimes and how he seemed to just get off without any punishment, no matter what he did. The judge said, quote, 
I am absolutely convinced that Mr. Hansen is going to commit additional crimes, but in this case, the Supreme Court has indicated that as long as the crimes are against property and not crimes of violence, the community is just going to have to tolerate it, end quote. Which, um, it did not stick to just property crimes. No, it did not. It was around this general time period that two more disappearances occurred that we're not 100% sure are Robert's fault or not. The first one was of a 17-year-old girl named Megan Emmerich, who disappeared on July 7th of 1973. She was last seen leaving the laundry room of her boarding school down in Seward, Alaska. And she seemingly just vanished into thin air. All of her belongings were left behind. She took nothing with her. There was a search conducted, but it turned up nothing. Robert denied killing her, but he did admit to being in Seward that day, And on a map that was found in his possession, there was an X just outside of Seward on the map. So a lot of people thought that he was responsible and that's where her body was. But they never actually searched that area to see if they could find her there. Which makes no sense to me. Mind you, Seward, again, it's only about a two or three hour drive south of Anchorage. It's very Mm -hmm. easy day trip. Very easy day trip to go down there. Yeah. It's not, it wouldn't be... It wouldn't be like he'd have to go out of, you know, spend a week to get there and stay there and stuff. Right. And especially if he had his plane by this point. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Megan has still never been found to this day. No sign of her. Years later, a jailhouse informant said that Robert had confessed to killing Megan and that he had taken her to a cabin that was only accessible by boat where he had killed her and buried her. But that story was never confirmed. And to this day, it's a big question mark. Mm -hmm. There is no evidence that exists that Megan was involved in any sex work of any kind. The other murder that he might have been responsible for in this time period is a 22-year-old woman named Mary Kathleen Phil. She was last seen on July 5th of 1975 in Seward as well. Her husband was working on the pipeline at the time, and Mary was just out and she was out and about around town that day. We know she stopped at a bakery for a while. It was not Hanson's Bakery in Anchorage. This was just a local town bakery in Seward. We know she went for a walk, but sometime after or during that walk, she completely vanished. Just like Megan, she had no known involvement in any sex work. And we know that Robert was in Seward that day, but he denies having anything to do with it. Just a coincidence. Yeah. Also... Yeah, also like Megan, there was a little black X on his airplane map in the General Resurrection Bay area, which is right by Seward. It's just a big body of water right there. But boy, you put something in that water. It's gone. Yeah. I mean, you get killer whales out there. You get, there's a lot well, of things that can happen. We went halibut fishing and you put down this chunk of meat down on the sandy Oh, it's gone. Sandy it's floor. gone. Well, not only that, not from the halibut, but you get into these swarms of sand shrimp stuff mm-hmm. and they look mm-hmm. like little fleas yeah. and you bring up your meat and it is to the bone in 15 minutes sitting on the bottom right and then you have to move places because you're not gonna have any bait for the halibut because these sand fleas eat, eat it. them <laughs> or sand shrimp whatever they are they are gross they look like little fleas they're but they're about the size of i don't know a bumblebee mm-hmm. and they you just it takes that chunk of meat to the bone in 15 minutes. Yeah. So anything can mm-hmm. happen to a body down there. 
I've got a lot of, <laughs> you've got crab, you've got salmon shark, you have, because there are some sharks up here you've that got they will a eat. lot of, uh, Lot washes up on the shore anywhere there's life. bears yeah there's eat. there's wildlife in the ocean there's wildlife out of the ocean right. there's wildlife everywhere that will eat meat <laughs> okay so he denies having anything to do with it there's a black x on the airplane map in resurrection bay and just like before another jailhouse informant comes forward and says that while incarcerated robert had admitted to carrying mary and dumping her in the waters of resurrection bay so take that as you will The next murder that we know that Robert committed is one that he confessed to and um, we're pretty much positive he was responsible for. And that was the murder of a woman known only as Eklutna Annie. You listen to a lot of other sources and they call it Eklutna Annie. It's not. It's (laughs) Eklutna. With the new advances in DNA technology and genetic genealogy that's been happening, um, we might see an identification of a clue Annie, but up to this point, it hasn't happened yet. They're working on it. They're working on it. Robert admitted to abducting a clue Annie and driving her out to a clue a- Lake, hence the name. And Robert said that his truck got stuck in the snow and he told a clue Annie that he was going to get the truck out and take her straight home. But, of course, she didn't believe him. So as he was working on the truck to dig it out of the snow, she made a run for it into the woods. Which is exactly what he wants. As soon as he saw her take off, Robert was taking off after her. He chased her and grabbed her by the hair. At which point, she reached into her purse and pulled out this massive hunting knife and started waving it around wildly, trying to protect herself. Robert said that he was able to wrestle the knife away from her and get her to the ground, where he stabbed her repeatedly with the knife that she had brought to protect herself. We know that she was between the ages of 16 and 25 years old. She was killed sometime in the winter months between 1979 and 1980. We know she was either a topless dancer or a prostitute. Robert said that Eklutna Annie was from Kodiak, Alaska, but Anchorage police have some reason to believe that she was actually from California. And like I said, to this day, she has not been positively identified. Well, again, they're working on transient. Yeah. And yeah, no missing person report that matches her at all. Mm-hmm. So that's hard. After Robert killed Eklutna Annie, he just sort of left her there and went back to doing his thing. It would only be a few more months before he would try to strike again. But this time, the woman that he targeted would successfully escape from him. The woman ran to a nearby neighbor's house where she was found naked and shivering. Her hands and feet were bound with guitar string, and still police did not believe her story. They basically asked her what had happened, and she said Robert Hansen, by name, had brutally assaulted her and bound her with guitar string and left her to die. And he says, oh, I've never met this. Robert said, oh, I've never met this woman in my life, and I have no idea what she's talking about. And of course, they take his side. Why would she have his name? Yeah. Robert's next victim was 24-year-old just Joanna Messina, who went missing on May May 19th of 1980. Joanna was a topless dancer at one of the strip clubs in Seward. She was last seen leaving for a date with who else but Robert Hansen. When Robert tells the story of this night, he says that everything was going smoothly right up until the point that Joanna offered him sex in exchange for money. Very much proving that he was hunting and seward too. Yeah. Joanna had her dog with her on this date, and Joanna said that 
And Robert said that he refused to pay, but he also refused to let her leave. He ended up driving her to a remote area outside of town where he hit her and her dog, sorry, with a 22 revolver before shooting them both dead and dumping them in a nearby gravel pit. Mm. I would love to say that we're getting close to the end of this reign of terror, no, but unfortunately we are not. So just continue to buckle in as this just gets worse. When Joanna's body was found, it had been ravaged by wildlife activity. Um, and they were the police were having a hard time getting to her because of the black bear activity on her body. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And it's not like they could just shoot this black bear. Right. Um, so they, that was kind of a uniquely Alaskan struggle for them. Robert's next victim was 24-year-old Roxanne Eastland, who went missing on July 28th of 1980. She was supposed to meet an unknown man on 4th Avenue in Anchorage. We don't know a lot about the details of her death, but we know that Robert admitted to her murder. And there's a little bit of uh, confusion here. One source that I read said that Robert led police to Roxanne's body after he was caught. Another said that she had never been found. So I'm a little bit confused on that. Um, I'm going to look further into it and get you more information during part two. The next murder victim was 41-year-old Lisa Futrell, who went missing on September 6th of 1980. Hansen did admit to kidnapping her, and her body wasn't found until four years later. She was found in a gravel pit next to the old Knick Bridge. You know, the one that Sam got his senior pictures done at. Right. No big deal. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. Everything's fine. Now, you might have noticed Robert is really picking up the pace in these murders. I mean, by now, his own by his own confessions, he had four murders in 1980 alone. Unfortunately, he kind of keeps up this pace in the years following. And well, nobody's putting it together. Nobody's yeah. figuring it out. I will say that police were not entirely oblivious to the number of dancers and sex workers who were disappearing into thin air and sometimes turning up dead in remote areas. But if they weren't turning up dead, they they were probably just moved along somewhere else. Yeah, That's what many of the police officers thought. But there was one detective, a woman named Maxine Farrell, mm-hmm. who was on this case from the beginning. And she kind of knew and had a sense of what was happening. And she was right, even if she wasn't exactly believed. Right. Maxine was one of the first two women hired to the Anchorage Police Department. She was tough as nails. She still is. (laughs) She kind of had to be. I mean, there were no locker rooms for women police officers. They had to change in bathroom stalls. People on the force and off the force felt the right to come up to her all the time and say a ton of just misogynistic bullshit, honestly. Mm -hmm. It was was hard for her to be a a police officer at this time. It's definitely an old boys club. And especially in the 70s. Yeah. Area where it was all men men. anyway in the population, not just in the police force. She dealt with a lot Mm -hmm. in her career, especially starting off. Um, And one of the things that she was dealing with was that from very early on, she had the feeling that there was a serial killer in Anchorage who was behind all of these disappearances and and get people to believe them. Yeah. Of course, her superiors laughed at her for totally outlandish and conspiratorial beliefs. But Maxine didn't give up, and she became an advocate and a voice for these women as she was trying to solve their murders. 
And I think that's where I'm going to leave it until part two. Interesting. Maxine's on the case. Maxine is on the case. We're getting this solved. Right. But this is 1980. Yeah. So we still got a few years. We got a couple years. Yeah. Yeah. Um, This is like the point where in, where Morbid cuts off for part two, (laughs) where it's like a turning point for the documentary that is about this. Like this is. Maxine's on the case. A turn. (laughs) (laughs) We're getting out of the weeds. Oh, yeah. And the fact that this raw audio is an hour and a half long, so (laughs) it'll be a good, a good over uh, an hour. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good little chunk of episode here for you. We know you probably didn't enjoy (laughs) the story so much, but I I hope you enjoyed our rendition of it or listening to us again. (laughs) We'll come back next week to hear the rest of the story. Yes, yes, we will get that out to you just as soon as we can, and. I don't know, Mom, you have anything to add before I close this out? We'll see you next week. All right. Um, Don't forget to follow us on social media. Check out all of our links in the description below. We hope you have an excellent and safe week as we try and get episode part two out to you. And in the meantime, don't forget to take your vitamin D. Bye. Bye.